So this, <clears throat> this morning we're going to continue with uh, Paul. This is called Call to Suffer. I know that's a really exciting topic. I know you're just eager. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, actually, in some ways, when I was kind of working through it, I thought, you know, really in some ways it's more about conflict than just out and out suffering in some ways. Uh, and, and, you know, conflict isn't necessarily the same thing as suffering. Uh, it can be, but, you know, sometimes it's positive, and some people like conflict. Uh, you know, we, we on the staff learned uh, pretty quickly that most of us kind of try to avoid it, but our good friend Cliff Wells, who worked for th- with us for many years, was always eager to wade right into conflict, and in fact, he, he just flat out tell you, well, I like conflict, and the rest of us would go, yeah, yeah, we know Cliff. Uh, so, you know, I mean, it kind of depends on your attitude and how you come at it as to whether you see it as a good thing or not. Uh, but we're going to talk a little bit about how, in, in Paul's case, um, those were things that ended up being productive um, in positive ways. So I'm going to set you in, in time a little bit here that uh, Paul and Barnabas have come back from the first journey. Uh, they're back in Antioch, Syrian, not, I mean, in uh, Syrian Antioch, not Pisidian Antioch, but their home church in Antioch. And as they're there, uh, there's going to be a big conflict over the whole issue of, of circumcision. Uh, it's going to result with them going down and appearing uh, and discussing with the Jerusalem Council uh, before they begin the second missionary journey. And, and somewhere in that time frame, and we're not really sure exactly where, Paul's going to write the letter to the Galatians. Uh, Galatia is not a particular place, I mean, not a particular uh, community, it, it's a region of Asia. And those churches that he went to last time, uh, uh, Derby, uh, Lystra, Iconium, uh, Pisidian, Antioch, all those all those are the churches uh, that would have been included in that letter when he writes that. Uh, so this morning we're going to start off in a minute with, a, with wading right into the conflict over circumcision. Uh, let's pray. Father, we come on this morning when the sun's out and the heat's rising, and we thank you for the coolness of air conditioning. Uh, we thank you for the presence of your spirit with us this morning. Uh, open us up to hear what you have to say. May the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So to, to start with, to understand a little bit about this, uh, the issue of circumcision, it's important to know that how um, this is very much a part of the covenant uh, that God makes with his people. We go back into Genesis. Uh, and God says, you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So this is, this is kind of a big deal. Uh, you know, and, and from that period of time on, uh, this is a mark of the Hebrew people. And what happens is uh, there, there's a change occurring in the middle of this that, that's actually already in process uh, and, and if you think about the, the idea of God's covenant people, what you realize is there's, there's kind of this expanding cone of people uh, who are involved in that. It, you know, it starts off with just Abraham and then Abraham and Sarah. And then, and then as they have family, that grows. And as the tribe grows, it grows. And as the people of Israel grow, you know, numerically, that cone is expanding. And, and by the time you get into the period of uh, the exile and post-exile, uh, you have prophets like Isaiah who are saying, you know, it's really just not enough. Uh, that you should go and, and bring my word to my people Israel. You know, it's time that my people Israel should be a light to the nations. So, so you have this expansion, this understanding that the covenant's not just for the Hebrews, but actually that they're supposed to be bringing that to the whole world. And, and that continues through the intertestament period until Jesus comes, you know, and uh, right, come to save the whole world. I mean, the, the covenant expands and keeps growing wider. And as it does, and it expands out beyond just the Hebrew people, um, 
the issue arose, okay, so if, if they're not Hebrews, but they're going to be followers of the way, uh, what does the covenant demand of them? Do they have to be circumcised? And that was a big debate. So certain individuals came from Judea and were teaching the brothers, uh, this is in Antioch, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, you really need to hear the understatement in that. <laughs> Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. Uh, I, no small debate. I mean, you know, Paul basically has a face-off with Peter in the middle of this, accuses Peter of being a hypocrite in front of everybody. Uh, so it, it's not a small, it's, it's a major, this is a major kind of event. Uh, and if you read Paul's letter to the Galatians, uh, you get some idea of uh, his feeling about it when he writes to them and he says, boy, I wish those people that want you to circumcise uh, yourself would mutilate themselves. Uh, he's, he's, you know, he's pretty heated up about this topic. Now, now as they go into Jerusalem, a couple of things have happened. One, you remember Peter has this dream of the sheet let down with the animals on it and God declaring that everything he's made is clean to eat and, and Peter's understanding is okay so the covenant's expanding out beyond uh, just the Hebrew people and, and he goes to Cornelius's household is invited there and, and as he's there uh, the, the spirit falls on Cornelius's household and, and Peter realizes that even though they aren't Hebrews I mean this is a Roman family he realizes that God is inviting them uh, to be part of his people too and so he baptizes them uh, so Peter has seen that vision. Paul and Barnabas have seen that as they've been in this ministry with, among all these Gentiles. And, and they come to Jerusalem uh, to the council and they have this meeting where they are sharing what they have seen and what they've experienced. And, and then the council begins this big debate because most of the folks in the Jerusalem council are Jewish Christians. And so this is a, this is a, a long debate. There's a, a lot of discussion, uh, a lot of time in prayer, a lot of time in fasting. And eventually, uh, in the midst of that, uh, James will, will come to the body, and, uh, and you get some idea of James's uh, influence and importance in the body. You know, we only have one small bit of writing from James, but, but you hear in this statement he makes to the council uh, something of his influence, uh, because he, he comes to him and he says, here is my decision. Here's almost like a royal proclamation, right? Here is my decision. We're not going to unnecessarily burden non-Jewish people who turn to the master. We'll write them a letter and tell them, be careful to not get involved in activities connected with idols, to guard the morality of sex and marriage, to not serve food offensive to Jewish Christians, blood for instance. This is basic wisdom from Moses, preached and honored for centuries now in city after city as we have met and kept the Sabbath. So he's gonna say that to the council. The council is gonna take that. They're gonna pray over it again. Uh, and spend some time with that. And then, and then they're going to send Paul and Barnabas and Silas uh, with this letter back up to Antioch. And in the letter they're going to write, it seemed to the Holy Spirit and to us. So they've invited. Remember, all the way through the Acts, you've got the Holy Spirit involved. They've invited the Holy Spirit to, to come into this conversation with them and, and taking James's word and invited the Spirit to confirm that. Uh, it seemed to the Holy Spirit and to us that you should not be saddled with any crushing burden but be responsible only for these bare necessities. Be careful not to get involved in activities connected with idols. Avoid serving food offensive to Jewish Christians, blood for instance, and guard the morality of sex and marriage. These guidelines are sufficient to keep relations congenial between us and God be with you. And you'll notice how that's almost word for word what James told them. 
uh, how similar it is. So you, you hear James's influence on the body in, in this and how much uh, authority he carried uh, when he spoke to the body. And this group then takes that letter, it goes back up to Antioch, and eventually it's going to go out into Asia Minor and be shared with the other churches uh, across Asia Minor. Now, as they come up, you know, and you listen to that, you think, oh, so are there only three things they have to, to keep in mind? Is that it? Um, in the early church, there was discussion around this. Uh, so, so, you know, what does that mean, really? And uh, Origen, writing in the uh, early 200s, Origen's probably the most uh, prolific commentator on Scripture in the early church, first 300 years of the church's life. Uh, he writes to this, and he says, so, so some of you are teaching that, that this means that, you know, these are the only things that apply. He said, so does that mean then that uh, Christians are free to murder people, and that's okay? Uh, are, are, are you saying that Christians can steal from people, and that's okay? Is that what you think this means? And Origen says, no, that's not what it means. Because all of those other things are outlawed by Roman law anyway. All they're doing is addressing the things that Roman law would not have addressed that were part of the Mosaic law. So that's all they're addressing here. Don't, don't worship idols. Um, don't do things uh, food-wise that are going to be offensive to your Jewish brothers and sisters. They're being released from, from keeping kosher but they still cannot do particular practices that will offend the Jews who are in the church with them and, and, and don't engage in immor sexual immorality. Uh, it's, it's a very simple kind of piece, but it, a lot of the other kinds of parts of the Mosaic law were covered under Roman law and they didn't feel the need to address those. Um, the word that they're using here for immorality is uh, the word porneus uh, in Greek and uh, it, it's kind of the broad term for act of sexual immorality. It kind of covers the whole waterfront kind of term. It's the most broad term that's used in Scripture. It's obviously where we get pornography from uh, and those kinds of statements. So, so this is the term that's used here. And, and really what they're saying is not that the law of Moses doesn't apply, but rather that, you know, you know the law of Moses tells you what's okay and anything else is not okay uh, is what they're saying. So uh, actually what this is, is not a release from the law of Moses, but rather it's a loosening of the ritual restrictions that were placed upon the Hebrew people in the early covenant and recognizing that now we have people who are not Hebrews and therefore they're not as bound by those ritual restrictions, but they're still bound by the moral codes of the Mosaic law. And so this letter goes out to, to the uh, city of Antioch and then on up into the churches of Asia Minor. And as that does, uh, you know, it spreads through this region. Paul's going to take it with him on this journey and share it. And you can see on this map, he starts back in Antioch, which is home base for them. Uh, he's going to come back up overland this time through Tarsus and into the, the churches he's already started there, Derby and Lystra, Iconium, uh, Pisidian, Antioch. Uh, he's going to swing on up into Galatia and across there to Mycenae. And some interesting things happen as they're making this journey. And you can see uh, he's going to bridge over into Macedonia, into southern Greece. Um, as they get ready to go, uh, there's a discussion about who's going to make this journey. Uh, and so uh, Paul and Barnabas, remember, made the first journey. And so they get ready to go. And Barnabas wants to bring along uh, John, who is called Mark. Apparently, <clears throat> in a previous effort, uh, Mark did not turn out so hot. And so Paul and Barnabas have this disagreement about whether he should join them on this journey. Uh, Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark, but... Paul decided not to take with them one who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not accompanied them in the work. The disagreement became so sharp that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and set out. 
the believers commending him to the grace of the Lord. Uh, Silas will also be called Silvanus. It's the same character. It's just the different spellings, uh, uh, the Greek and the Hebrew kind of versions of the name. So, so Paul and, and Barnabas are going to part company at this point. Now remember, Barnabas was Paul's mentor when Paul started off. Barnabas was his mentor on that first journey. But now Paul is going to reject Barnabas' advice. And Barnabas now is raising up somebody else to encouraging. You know, he's encouraging Mark and trying to build him up. And Paul's going to say back to him, you know, he didn't turn out so good last time. We're not taking him. We're not going to drag dead weight on this trip. And they have this big disagreement. And you see something of the difference in the character of the two men. Uh, Paul, who's, who's a little more black and white, willing to be a little more harsh, uh, in his decision-making process. Barnabas, who's the encourager, realizes Mark didn't do so good last time, but he still has confidence in him and wants to encourage him. Uh, and there's a disagreement, which apparently was pretty acrimonious, because remember, Paul is talking to his mentor, saying, well, that's good. You take him and go do your thing, and we're going to go do something else. Uh, it had to be a fairly heated discussion again. The interesting thing is, although you have this split here in the early church, uh, it's just amazing isn't it, that they have conflict in the church. Although you have this split in the church, uh, the later letters that Paul writes, we don't know when it occurred, but they reflect that somewhere later on uh, that got smoothed over and uh, there was a reconciliation that took place. Because when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, uh, he's uh, making a comment about receiving uh, support. He says, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Uh, he's bringing Barnabas onto the same level of his, as himself. Uh, no, no word of harshness or anything there. I mean, he, he's, he's acknowledging that Barnabas is just as important to the church as he is. And then when you get into Timothy, he actually commends Mark, right? Get Mark and bring him with you for he's useful in my ministry. He, he, he's recommending him. So somewhere a change occurred in there. And we don't know what the story was, but we know that there was some kind of a reconciliation that took place in that relationship uh, and lifted them up. He begins his journey, heads into... Uh, Asia Minor, and uh, as he's traveling through there, uh, he's going to encounter some interesting kinds of things, uh, and, and he's going to have a change of plans. Uh, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. You know, we think a lot of times about the Spirit encouraging us to share and all that. We don't oftentimes speak about the Spirit telling us no. Uh, had been forbidden to speak the word. When they came opposite Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. And during the night, Paul had a vision. There stood a man of Macedonia pleading with him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, we immediately tried to cross over to Macedonia, being convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. Now, a couple of things in here that uh, I want to lift up. And one is, if you didn't catch the, the shift uh, in, in the language, as this passage begins, he says, when they had done this and when they had done that. And you notice when he gets down to the last sentence, we tried to cross, being convinced that God had called us to proclaim. You hear the, the difference? Most scholars assume that, that that means that at this point, Luke had joined Paul and Silas on this journey and that he traveled with them for a while. So you'll hear the we language for a while while, while Luke is with them. It'll convert back to they language later on when they leave Luke behind. But most scholars assume that that means Luke traveled with them for part of this journey. You'll also hear on this how, how Paul is listening to the guidance of the Spirit. Paul, you know, I mean, this man of you know, pretty strong conviction, to put it mildly, 
has a plan about where he's going to go. And God stops him and says, no, that's not what you're going to do. I want you to go over here. You know, how often in our lives when we're going along and, and, and the door closes on us, do we see it that way? I mean, it's, it's so easy to say, well, we've got our plans, and we figured everything out, and then it just won't work. It's too often we say, ah, you know, God just won't help us out with this. You know, God, God's not, you know, blessing this. God's not favoring us with this. God's working against us. And we hear it as a negative instead of hearing that maybe what God is saying is, no, not here, but there. And Paul, instead of hearing it as a negative, realizes he's being redirected in a different way to ministry. And a lot of us, in hindsight, can see that. And we can look back on it and say, oh, I get what you're doing. But at the moment, we're pretty frustrated and upset about it. And Paul embraces it. Okay, this is what we're supposed to do, God. Let's go to Macedonia. He just steps in. The way he, he takes what most of us would have heard as a frustration and turns it into an opportunity and a motivation. So they go across to Macedonia, and uh, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate there near Philippi by the river, where we supposed there was a place for prayer, because that was not unusual. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. A certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Theatira and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul, when she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. So we meet Lydia here, who's going to be a leader in this early church, uh, and, and a woman of great importance in this early church. Uh, in none of the scriptures do we hear anything about her husband. So the assumption is she was either divorced or widowed. Uh, she's a dealer in purple cloth, and that was a very uh, expensive commodity at that time. So again, the assumption is that she probably was a woman of some means uh, and fairly wealthy. And she meets them there and, and immediately is converted. And she becomes a leader in that church. She brings them into her home. She starts to lead that church. Uh, Paul is sometimes uh, characterized as dealing with women in certain ways. And the interesting thing is if you actually read through his letters and all of his interactions, uh, you get a really varied picture uh, you know, here's Lydia, who's going to be the leader of this church. You know, there's going to be a group of women in Corinth. He's basically going to say, you know, you need to tell them to sit down and be quiet uh, because apparently they were disruptive uh, to the church. But he responds in different kinds of ways uh, to the women in different communities. So if you go to the end of Romans, to the, the greetings he sends out um, at the end of Romans in the 16th chapter, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints. Uh, greet Prisca, or Priscilla as we would say, and Aquilia, who work with me in Christ Jesus and who risk their necks for my life. Uh, greet Mary, who's worked very hard among you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles and they were in Christ before I was. Uh, you, you hear this picture that uh, there are women who occupy a fairly prominent role of leadership in some of these churches. And apparently as Paul's writing this, instead of reading that as he's making a judgment, all, you know, everybody's this way, everybody's that way, uh, he's responding situationally to different people in different places. Uh, and in some places, the, the response is, okay, you guys just need to be quiet. In other places, he's lifting them up as, and recognizing them as fellow laborers and co-ministers with him in the gospel. It's not a, uh, 
it's not a, a, you know, a, a monolithic kind of picture. It varies from community to community. The other thing about this I want you to point out is, is, is they go and they baptize the whole household. Uh, that's not uncommon. When Peter went to Cornelius' house, remember Cornelius was a Roman, uh, he, he baptizes the whole household. Uh, they're going to baptize the whole household here. There's going to be another one a little later where you're going to hear that, where they go. And they do these baptisms. We in the church have fought about baptism, uh, you know, pretty much ad nauseum for a long time, about, the, you know, when and how and all those kinds of things. Uh, so we've disagreed about, do you do it when they're little babies? Do you wait till they're older? Do you do it as adults? Uh, do you have to immerse them? Can you pour water over them? What's the right way to do it? And it's been enough of an argument at times that we've divided into different denominations and, and branches over this issue. Uh, and so once you notice that there's absolutely nothing here about exactly what method Paul used. And in the early church, uh, probably the earliest piece of instruction we have about this is from the writings of the Didache, the 12 patriarchs of the early church, from around 96 AD. It says, baptize into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in living water. But if you have no living water, living water being flowing water like a stream or a fountain, if you have no living water, baptize into other water. A still pool and, and if cannot be and if you cannot do so in cold water do so in warm but if you have neither pour out water three times upon the head in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit so so early on they're already saying you know it, it's not the, the methodology is not the main thing but before the baptism let the baptizer fast and the baptized and whoever else can but you shall order the baptized to fast one or two days before and the important thing is not the form, the important thing is the spirit. Uh, and even early on in the church's life, uh, there was apparently some disagreement about that, that the, the fathers felt they needed to address when people were asking questions. And the, and the answer is do, do, do whatever works. I mean, do what you have the ability to do. Um, and if that means you pour water on them or you sprinkle them or you dunk them or whatever, that's okay. That's not the main thing. The main thing is the spirit in which they come. So um, as they continue on in their ministry and, and they're in there, this woman begins to follow them. Uh, one day as we're going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune telling. She had a, a spirit dwelling in her who could tell people's future. And so her owners would charge people, if you will, for a session with her to find out what their future was going to hold. That's how they made money off of her. And while she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, these men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. Now, in Scripture, if you read through the different places where we have talk about demon possession, especially when you read in the Gospels, whenever Jesus shows up, the demons always recognize who he is. We know who you are, Son of the Most High. What have you got to do with us? And there's always a recognition. So the fact that, that, that that's called out does not mean that that's a good spirit. Um, yeah, I mean, even, even, even the evil spirits recognize who Christ is and who Paul is. Uh, and so she's following him and she's crying this out. And she kept doing this for many days. And, and remembering who Paul is, Paul, very much annoyed. I'm surprised it took many days. But Paul, very much annoyed, turned to say to the spirit, I ordered you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. I mean, Paul finally loses patience. She's following him around wherever they go, crying out to him. And he commands the spirit to come out of the woman, which releases her to live her life fully. 
but deprives her owners of their income, right? Because they've been making money off this woman. So now they can't make money off of it. That makes them mad at Paul and his companions. They go to the authorities and they have him arrested for taking away their livelihood. And he's thrown in prison, uh, possibly one that looks something like this. Uh, we don't know exactly uh, where he was at, but uh, something along this line. This is one of the ones around Philippi. And I remind you, they were, they were carved back into the hillside. They had gates over them then. And, and remember, in this day and age, once night came, they were very dark. Because, you know, like, no electric lights, right? So, so, so when the night came, these areas would become very, very dark. So at about midnight, really dark, Paul and Silas are in there, and they're praying, and they're singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, is that what you would have been doing? You know, if you'd gotten arrested, particularly if you got arrested unjustly and thrown in jail, uh, would you be sitting there at midnight singing and praying hymns and sharing the gospel with the other people in the jail? Or would you be sitting there saying bad things about someone? Now, so here they are. It's midnight. It's the middle of the night. It's dark. They're praying. They're singing. Other people are listening to them. Suddenly there's an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. Because in this day and time, if the prisoners escaped, you took their place. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights, and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Isn't it interesting? The, the doors open up, their chains fall off, but they don't leave. They stay put. Because God still has something for them to do. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. At the same hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. So, so here's this moment when Paul's thrown in prison with his companions. Uh, he's released. Instead of running away from that, he, he's going to take that. It's just an opportunity. We can witness to the other prisoners that are here. We can witness to the jailer. Uh, and, and he's going to turn what most of us would consider a really bad situation into an opportunity to do ministry and proclaim the gospel. Very different from what a lot of us would do in our lives. Uh, to be willing to know that God is with you and to take advantage of that. He's going to write and say, I want you to know, beloved, that what's happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. This has actually turned out to be a good thing, folks. We, we've, we've spread the gospel to the imperial guard. It's encouraged the whole Christian community to witness and to share their faith. Amazing way of taking what most of us would have seen as a negative and seeing it as an opportunity for something amazing to happen. At the end of his letter to the Philippians, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, 
which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Rejoice always. Written from the cell of a prison, maybe? I mean, rejoice always. And, uh, give thanks. Remember that God is with you. I mean, how often when, when we hit those places in life where we run into major conflicts or when things don't work out or where we're having uh, to suffer some kind of injustice, do we tend to go negative? You know, okay, God, why have you abandoned me? God, why have you betrayed me? God, where are you? But that's not what you hear coming from Paul. Well, rejoice always. You know, on that morning when the power's going on at night, and your alarm clock is, you know, reset itself to 12 o'clock and it's flashing. So you've gotten up late the next morning for work. And then you get up and you swing your feet out and you step in that hairball that the cat left on the floor. And then you limp into the shower because you're going to wash that off of yourself. And the hot water heater is down, so you have to take a cold shower. And then you eat and you're running late and you're already unhappy and the battery in your car is dead. Do you start rejoicing at that point and giving thanks? Or are you doing something else? <laughs> Rejoice always. Because the Lord is near. E even in this time and even in this place, the Lord is near. God is with you. No matter what it is, no matter what the situation, there is an opportunity here to be an agent of God's gospel. God is with you even in that time and place. And if you'll open your heart and your mind and your spirit to listen God can still do amazing things in the midst of your hardship that not only bring joy to you, but joy to the people around you. So what we listen to our brother Paul go through all this kind of stuff and this amazing journey and the things he faces, the conflicts he has to work through, and, and you think, ah, and sometimes it just sounds overwhelming. And then you hear, you know, here he is in jail, and he's rejoicing. I just wonder, in our own lives, whatever conflict you're facing, whatever battle you're in, whatever injustice you're facing, whatever suffering you've been through, I mean, do you look at that and, and basically say, well, you know, God, you abandoned me, you betrayed me? Or can you recognize that even in that time and even in that place, the Lord is near and God is with you and God will uphold you and God will guard you and if you listen, God will even speak the good news through you. Let us pray. Mighty God, we come and we confess to you that we don't like conflict. We don't like to suffer. We don't like it when things don't go the way we've planned it. And sometimes in the midst of that, we, in the midst of our frustration or our pain or our hurt, we break faith with you. And so we ask this morning as we come to this table that you remind us that you never break faith with us, that you are always near to us, that your grace always rests on us and your love is always poured out on us, and that even in those times in life when things are difficult, if we will just open the ears of our hearts There is a good word to be spoken to the world. There is a witness to be made. There is an opportunity before us to be part of your unfolding of the kingdom. So Lord, open us up 
to be aware of your presence, that we might rejoice always, that we might give thanks in all things, and that we might know your peace dwelling in us, even in the most difficult of times. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.